Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Scott. Nice to see you today. Uh, we've got a good crowd here in Northville. Also want to welcome those of you worshiping from home, online, or by radio. And today, I want to formally welcome all of you gathered in Farmington Hills at the Farmington Hills campus on this day, the grand opening of Ward Church Farmington Hills. Good morning to all of you. Yeah, this has been uh, more than a year in the making. It started when Grace Chapel, a daughter church of Ward, uh, merged back into Ward Church, was adopted into Ward Church with the idea of relaunching a fresh expression, a locally and relationally focused expression of Ward Church on that same Farmington Hills property. And today is the launch day, and I want to congratulate Pastor Sean Carroll and the elders in Farmington and all of you gathered there today. Way to go. Let's give them applause again. Way to go, Farmington. So our two campuses, Northville and Farmington Hills, will join together every Sunday for the sermon only. Uh, there's live music and live people and live coffee and all that uh, separate places, but we join together via video link for the teaching time because we are one church and we all sit under the same teaching. And I'm really excited about the things we're learning together this fall. Today we're going to talk about biblical community. And that word community is overused and under understood in our, in our time. I remember the first time I visited what's called a gated community. This is many years ago. I was a youth pastor and I was there visiting someone who lived uh, there. And I pulled up in my very old car and there was a, a booth with a uh, guy in it, a guard, and, uh, and he began to grill me with questions. Now, today, usually there's a, a microphone and a button you push or a camera, but in those days, they actually placed uh, an intimidating, condescending person just as an extra level of security. And this guy just asked me, you know, who are you? Why are you here? Who are you here to visit? Does anybody know you're coming? How long will you be here? And does your car leak fluids? That's what he asked me, yeah. And of course my car leaked fluids. I was a youth pastor. Now, this guy uh, is not the welcoming committee. This guy is not a greeter in that community. Uh, this guy is not there to welcome people in. This guy is there to keep people out. And this man understood his mission well. Now, ironically, churches can become kind of a gated community in mindset. I read about a monastic community, I think it's a true story, that had a fence or a wall all around it to keep insiders in and outsiders out, and there was a sign on the gate that said, keep out, beware of the dog, trespassers will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law, and it was signed, Little Sisters of Mercy. <laughs> God did not create the church to be a gated community devoted to the comfort and protection of those inside the fence. God created the church to be a blessing to the world and to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to people beyond the fence and to the outer reaches of the world. Uh, now, gated communities are a great place to live. Maybe you live in a gated community. Those are fantastic places, especially if you have a pool and a clubhouse. Uh, I'm not here to diss gated communities, but to challenge the use of the word community. Uh, we're going to see in the Bible a more robust idea of community. This morning I want to contrast this idea of the American phenomenon of a gated community with the biblical community described in the pages of the Bible in the book of Acts. So you heard read earlier 
uh, descriptive statements about this new community centered in Jesus in the book of Acts. Uh, kind of a snapshot, a historical snapshot frozen in time of what those earliest followers of Jesus were like and how they lived. And I'm going to focus really on, on one verse that you heard read today. This is Acts 2.42. This earliest uh, church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Devoted is one of Luke's favorite words. He used this word repeatedly to describe what life is like inside this new community. In Acts chapter 1, he says they devoted themselves to gathering together for prayer. Uh, later, he says they devoted themselves to gathering together in the temple. In many ways, this new community is marked by the things they're devoted to. Uh, you and I, in many ways, are shaped by our devotions. And today, I want to look at some of the things this early community was devoted to and ask us to devote ourselves to the very same things. We'll notice at least six things that this early community of Jesus was devoted to. And this is all in the sermon notes section of your app. If you want to follow along uh, in detail, you can see all these things listed in the sermon notes section of the Word Church app. Life in a dynamic biblical community, we'll talk about six of the things they were devoted to. And the first one we'll talk about is this. They were devoted to transformational teaching, to transformational teaching. And that's what it said in Luke 2, 42. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to the apostles' teaching. Now, remember last week, we looked at the first part of Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit is poured out on Pentecost. And remember, they're speaking in tongues, and there's uh, flames of fire and, and blowing of wind, and, and people think that the people who are experiencing this, they, they think that they're drunk with wine. Remember, and Peter got up to explain it to everybody. Remember his big defense? He said, these people are not drunk with wine, as you suppose. What was his big reason? It's only 9 o'clock in the morning, he says. Now, I think he's off to a pretty weak start of his defense, but then he gets into it, and he gives a really powerful sermon. He quotes from the prophet Joel. You might remember last week, God says to the prophet Joel, a day is coming where I will pour out my spirit on all people, young and old, men and women, servants and masters. And, and uh, Peter quotes that, and then he gives a sermon, a really good sermon. Not very long, but he talks about the resurrection of Jesus. He invokes their patriarch, David, uh, David, whom we all respect, died and was buried. And even David is still in the tomb, Peter says. But Jesus has risen from the dead. And then uh, after he gives this short sermon, it says of them, when the people heard this, when they heard the scriptures read and proclaimed, they were what? Cut to the heart. Very interesting phrase. They were cut to the heart. Hold on to that. And said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, and what's the question? What shall we do? What shall we do with what we've heard? How are we going to put this into action? And then later it says, uh, 3,000 people received the message and were baptized on that day. This is a pretty good sermon. I don't know what criteria you use to evaluate a sermon, but this sermon was brief and had tremendous response. And aren't those two things we treasure most about, about sermons? Uh, <laughs> It's not very long, but what incredible impact. And when people heard it, they said, what should we do? Not what can we learn in our heads, but what can we do differently? And really, this is what every preacher honestly wants to hear. 
Uh, many years ago when I was new at this church, there was a very learned gentleman uh, in our church, very well respected. He taught classes, a uh, fantastic godly man who has since passed away. But he would say to me frequently after a Sunday, he would say, Scott, I agreed with what you said. And I know for him, that was a very high compliment. He was very respected. Uh, one time he said to me, you've been here five years now, and I have yet to hear a sermon with which I disagree. And again, for, for him, that was a great compliment, and I'm sure he meant it as the highest compliment he would ever give. But here's a little secret about preachers. We're going for something a little more. We don't want people to say, I cognitively agree we don't want people to get intellectual assent. What every preacher really wants is people to say, I was cut to the heart, and I will live differently because of it. What shall I do? I was cut, and I will live differently. Now, don't say that to me today after today's service, because that would be disingenuous. <laughs> Have you ever had the scriptures cut you in ways that hurt but you knew it was healing, like God was cutting things out of you that shouldn't be there, and then you lived differently because of it? That's how we receive teaching that is transformational. Biblical teaching became absolutely foundational to the early church. Uh, they, they allowed it to shape their thoughts and their attitudes and their perspectives and their actions because, listen, everybody is shaped by something. And if you are not going to be shaped by the words of the scriptures, then by what? By the conventional wisdom of the day? By cable television? The early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and we can too. The apostles' teaching, I take it to be the whole of the Bible. We have the apostles' teaching available to us, and the right way to approach it is to say, God, use this to cut me, do surgery on me, and what must I do? Help me become a more loving person. You can receive teaching the wrong way. Have you ever known somebody who knew a lot about the Bible, but in truth wasn't very loving? It is possible to receive teaching, but to do it in such a way that instead of becoming a more loving person, I only become more arrogant or judgmental or rigid. To receive teaching well is to allow it to transform you. So for each of these categories, I have some self-reflection questions for you to ask yourself. These are in your notes, but let me give you some reflection questions for this category. Ask yourself, am I devoted to transformational teaching? Do I receive teaching as a student or more as a consumer? Do I watch it reviewing a movie of some kind? Uh, is my approach to, to learning, does it lead me to become more loving and Jesus-like, or does it lead me to become proud and judgmental? All right, category number two, they devoted themselves to sincere fellowship. This is relationship, and we heard read, they devoted themselves to fellowship. Um, but it's not just here. Verse 44 says, all the believers were together. That word together appears everywhere. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. These people love to be together. They met in the temple courts, and they met from house to house. And you really need uh, both. The temple courts was a large group, 
uh, 50,000 people could gather in the temple courts. Some say 100,000 people would gather in the temple courts, and they met house to house in smaller groups. And we gather as a large group on Sunday morning, a few hundred people, and this is fantastic. And then we meet house to house or restaurant to restaurant or classroom to classroom or coffee shop to coffee shop in smaller groups. And so I love when we're together on Sunday morning. I love the worship together and the teaching together, but I really love the small group that I'm in that meets every other Thursday night and we know each other's kids and we pray for each other directly and we talk about our workplaces. I've got this small group and this large group just like the early church did. Because church is not some kind of Sunday morning show. Church is not even all about the worship experience. Church is about relationships. It's about community. And so ask yourself these reflection questions. Am I devoted to authentic relationships within the church? Do I have a regular large group and small group experience? Do I withdraw when things get difficult? How am I doing relationally? All right, uh, devotion number three. They devoted themselves to constant prayer, to constant prayer. We read things like this. They devoted themselves to prayer, Acts 2.42. They all joined together constantly in prayer, Acts 1.14. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly after they prayed, Acts 4.31. Brothers, say the leaders of the church, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them. We looked at this last week. And we, the leaders, will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. One more. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them and sent them off to mission work. In the early church, prayer wasn't like a midweek meeting, it was how they did things. Prayer wasn't a department of the church, it was the fabric of the church. It's how they made decisions, it's how they chose leaders, it's how they sent out missionaries, it's how they addressed problems, it's how they moved throughout the day. They prayed continually and without ceasing as the Apostle Paul instructs. So again, ask yourself a few reflection questions. Am I devoted to prayer? Do I only pray at designated times, or do I pray throughout my day, moment by moment? What would it mean for me to pray without ceasing? Do I really believe that prayer changes things? Uh, Number four, they were devoted to genuine unity. And again, we see this, all the believers were one in heart and mind. Now, does that mean there was no conflict in the early church? Um, It does not. We know from the book of Acts they had all kinds of conflict, but they worked through the conflict in healthy ways. They did not allow bitterness to fester in them day after day and year after year. Garrison Keillor writes about this mythical town in Minnesota. Anybody remember the name of the town? Lake Wobegon. And he writes in one place about the church that he grew up in. This is Garrison Keillor. He says, in the church that I grew up, There was a spirit of self-righteousness among certain elders that defied peacemaking. They were given to disputing small points of doctrine that seemed to them to be the very fulcrum of the faith. And then he's got this wonderful line. We were cursed with a surplus of scholars and a deficit of peacemakers. And so we tended to be divisive and split into factions. 
One dispute, when I was a boy, had to do with the question of showing hospitality to those who were in doctrinal error. In other words, if you showed kindness to somebody who holds false doctrine, are you implicated in that person's false doctrine? Kind of guilt by association. Uncle Al had family and friends on both sides of the debate, and it broke his heart. The dispute was really between two men, Brother William Miller and Brother James Johnson, who each dragged others into it. And so one fine August day, Uncle Al tried to make peace between these two marble-headed men and, pre- and prevent a great deal of unhappiness for the rest of us. He arranged for them to meet at his and Aunt Flo's on Sunday afternoon. A few Millerites and a few Johnsonians. Not to discuss the hospitality to error doctrine, but simply to enjoy a dinner of Aunt Flo's famous fried chicken. It took weeks to arrange. Uncle Al worked through an intermediary, Brother Fields, who had never shown hospitality to anyone, whether in error or not, and who therefore was neutral on the question. Finally, one Sunday, they arrived in two cars, both Fords, the brethren being united on the General Motors question. And they trooped in and sat around a long dining room table, extending with two leaves so that they wouldn't have to sit close together. And the Millerites and Johnsonians bowed their heads in prayer. Prayer was a delicate matter, he says. Brethren were known to even take prayer before a meal as a platform. And so Al, the peacemaker, concerned lest one brother take prayer and beat the other over the head with it, said, let us bow our heads in silent prayer, giving thanks for the meal. And they bowed their heads and closed their eyes, and a long time passed. The old clock ticked on the bureau. A cat walked in, meowed, and left. A child snickered and was stifled. Cars went by. There were dry sniffs and throat clearings. And soon it was clear, neither side wanted to stop before the other. They were seeing who could pray the longest. Brother Miller peeked through his fingers at Brother Johnson, who was earnestly engaged in silent communion with the Lord, who agreed with him on so many things. His forehead almost touched the plate. So Brother Miller drove back into prayer and the other brethren stayed under too, sneaking glances around the table to see if anyone noticed how long it was. It was becoming the longest table grace in history. It ground on and on and then Aunt Flo slid her chair back, went to the kitchen and brought out the food that they were competing to see who could be more thankful for. And then this wonderful line, she set the hay down where the goats could get it. Tears ran down Brother Johnson's face. His eyes clamped shut and tears streamed down and so was Brother Miller weeping. And then he writes, it's true what they say, that smell is the key that unlocks our deepest memories. And with her eyes closed, the smell of fried chicken and gravy made those men into boys again. It was years ago they were fighting and a mother's voice from on high said, you two stop it and get in here and have your dinners. Now I mean it. The blessed cornmeal crust and rapturous gravy brought the memory to mind and the stony hearts of the two giants melted. And they raised their heads and filled their plates and slowly peace was made over that glorious chicken. Unity, oneness, family is so precious to the heart of God that it cannot be overstated. Oneness is God's dream for humanity. But it doesn't happen naturally among us fallen, fallible human beings. And so God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross to pay the debt of sin for us all so that we can become one with God and so that we can become one with each other. 
And the early church was filled with people of different ethnicities, different political persuasions, different socioeconomic realities, all united together in Jesus. It doesn't mean they never argued or they didn't bump into each other or they didn't inadvertently offend one another. They did, but they prized unity and they were willing to do the hard work to achieve it. And so when you begin to read the letters of the New Testament, you see this urgency around the unity of the church. The Apostle Paul in one place wrote to the church at Ephesus, and he said this, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And the Apostle Paul said things like this all the time. The unity, the preservation, the sincere uh, unity of the church was to be prized. And so some reflection questions. Am I devoted to the body of Christ? Am I devoted to it? Do I have unresolved conflict with somebody else? Do I ever speak negatively about a brother or sister in Christ? Do I have a critical or judgmental spirit? All right, number five. They were devoted to sacrificial giving. And a few lines you heard read this morning, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. That's Acts 2.44. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And then imagine this. There were no needy persons among them, Acts 4.32. Now, it doesn't mean they gave everything away because it said they met in each other's homes. They still had homes. They didn't give everything away. What got transformed was how they thought about their stuff. They didn't think about it as my stuff. They thought, how can this stuff be used to bless other people? And it virtually eliminated need in that community. Right? Life does not happen this way in most homeowners associations, but this happens in every biblical community. Generosity and sacrifice are sure signs of the kingdom, and they've been marks of this church since the very beginning. I want to read a thank you note that our deacons received recently. Uh, They brought a stack of thank you notes, and I chose one of them to read to you today. Uh, This person writes, I want to thank Ward from the bottom of my heart. Without the support of fellow Christians, I would not have been able to get through this past year. I would have been in a bad way, probably homeless. I've always said I wish I could see or touch God, especially during my dark times. Thing is, I have been touched by God and seen his love for me through the people of Ward. Thank you so much for giving me this gift. Someone sacrifices over here, and a need is met over here. And I'm so glad to be part of a church where this kind of thing happens. So ask yourself, am I devoted to the removal of need in our midst? Am I devoted to using my stuff to bless people around me? Or on the challenge side, is it possible I've gotten too attached to my stuff? Is God calling me to give some of my stuff away? The oneness of the early church wasn't just a feeling. It was expressed in tangible and costly ways. For them, it was a natural response to the need in this vibrant community. All right, lastly, number six. They were devoted to kingdom expansion. They were devoted not just to the people inside the fence, inside the church, but they were devoted to the people beyond the walls and all around the world. We saw this in Acts 2, 47. They were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. 
and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They were enjoying favor, goodwill, good reputation, not just among insiders, but among outsiders as well. And I think that's a very good test for individuals and for a church. When someone would say, well, I'm, I'm not a Christian. I don't, I don't share their religion. I don't share their faith. But that church really does a lot of good in our community. I'm glad that church is part of my city. We want both of our campuses to have good relationships with their respective cities. And over the years, we have cultivated a great relationship with the township of Northville. Uh, we have said to our township, our building is available for your use. And in fact, the schools use our building for advanced placement tests. And the high school homecoming parade is staged in our parking lot. The Northville Township Police have uh, run exercises and trainings here in our building, and they've invited our security team to train with them at the Northville Township offices. The mayor of the city of Northville has been here to speak to our seniors, and the, and the uh, superintendent of schools has spoken to our staff. We see our city as partners in serving our city, and they have begun to see us this way too. They haven't always seen us as partners, but we have goodwill now with our township. Northville police officers are here on the property today as part of a community engagement event. So if you exit today from door number one, you have a chance to meet one of the Northville Township police officers. They've also got police cars and motorcycles out there that you can look at. You can't test drive them, but you can look at them. And uh, uh, they have arts and crafts for kids, and they've got donuts and cider for all of you today. You might see some of your neighbors out there because this is a community-wide event. And I encourage you to stop by today, door one, other side of this building, and say thank you to the men and women who serve our community in this unique way. Now, uh, those of you in Farmington Hills, you have your own after-church event, so this is not, uh, sorry, this is not for you. If you want to meet a police officer, you have to speed on your way home from church today. The idea is, if a church disappeared, would the local community mourn its loss? And I think it's worked for individuals too. Has God given you favor in your workplace and in your neighborhood? Would someone say, I don't share their beliefs, but those are the best neighbors in the neighborhood. They're the first to respond. They're the kindest people. I might not share everything they, they believe, but that person's a great contributor to our office and to our team. They're a great boss. They're a great employee, but more than that, they're a great person. I've heard it said that good deeds create goodwill, and goodwill opens the opportunity for good news. Good deeds lead to goodwill. Goodwill leads to good news. All right, we talked today about this idea of a gated community. And you and I, those of you that are part of this church, uh, you and I in many ways are the gatekeepers of this church. We will determine by our posture, by our attitude, by our invitation, uh, whether the doors of this church are open or whether they are closed. I want you to picture that gated community again in your mind, but imagine the gates are just open 24-7, and all the guys in the little guardhouses, they've been sent out into the neighborhoods around to invite people in. They're not grilling people anymore. They're now inviting people in and saying, hey, come on in, everybody. We got, we, got a, we got a swimming pool. We got a great clubhouse. Doesn't matter what kind of car you drive. Just come on in, everybody. And Jesus says the community he's building is more like that. That, that the kingdom of God is like a, a great banquet. 
And all the servants have been sent out into the highways and byways to invite people to come in, compel them to come in, the parable says. Because the gates of God's kingdom are flung open wide and God wants everybody to feel welcome. In fact, Jesus uses very interesting imagery he's talking about when he talks about the church in Matthew 16. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the, read the last part with me, gates of hell will not overcome it. The gates of hell will not overcome it. Ironically, at the end of the day, the gated community is not the church. According to the imagery of Jesus, the gated community is hell. Hell is the one who puts up fences and walls to keep out the life and the love of God. And the church's job is not just to welcome people in, it is to welcome people and make this accessible, but Jesus, our job is to go out and meet darkness head on. Our job is to beat down the gates of hell and to bring good news to all people and freedom to all people. Jesus says the true church will ram against the the gates of darkness and hatred and fear, and the gates of hell will be no match for the church of Jesus Christ. Committed to God under the power of the Holy Spirit, devoted to each other and devoted to God, the church will be an unstoppable force for good in this world. May it be so once more. Will you pray with me? Well, God of glory, we pray together that we would be a community of Jesus followers devoted to the right things. Stir in our hearts and minds as individuals and as a church family to prompt us in areas where our devotion has waned, to affirm us where our devotion is on track, to enable us to pursue these things from a whole heart, form us to be a church that not only welcomes people in, but a church that goes out to meet darkness head on. We will do your bidding, Lord. Wherever there is darkness, we will proclaim light. Wherever there is death, we will proclaim life. And the gates of hell will be no match for a united church empowered by the Spirit. May it be so in us and through us, This we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.